Welcome to episode 27 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my energetic co-host, Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Eddie, how are you doing tonight? Uh, doing really good, Winston. I'm nice and relaxed after a long four-day weekend for the Independence Day holiday, and uh, just started getting back to work in the shop yesterday, and got a lot to do this week. How about you? Uh, it's I had a great weekend, but I am a little tired because I flew over to the East Coast to visit a, an old childhood friend. So I am uh, still, it, it's been a long day for me right now. It's like the equivalent of uh, almost 11 o'clock. So um, long day for me, but otherwise doing quite well. Well, I'm glad you're back on the West Coast and hopefully you'll get some time with the machines this week. So uh, what's new in your shop? Uh, unfortunately not much in the, the home shop right now, just cause I've been wrapping up a couple, um, MDF projects, just really simple things, uh, in carbide create and whatnot. So those videos will hopefully hit the carbide 3d YouTube channel in the next uh, week or two. Um, all the fun stuff is happening over in the Torrance shop, um, where I keep my nomad and, uh, the... Uh, the material of the month is uh, O1 tool steel, so I've been playing around trying to learn how to dry machine that, which has been a little tricky at best. I mean, I've seen some of the, I don't know if you shared them publicly yet, but um, I saw what looks like success so far in the uh, intermediate I, work. I have successfully cut um, the steel to the shapes that I want, but what I'm not satisfied with is tool life. Um the first couple cuts I did, I ran at 10,000 RPM, uh, 332nd inch tooling, um, some 16th inch, and I was getting a lot of uh, chipped corners. And after I backed off to about 8,500 RPM, it got a lot better, and it seemed to be doing all right, but it was still, at some point, I would lose a flute, and uh, it would all go downhill from there really, really fast. And so I'm trying to figure out whether or not it's it's an SFM thing, if I back off even further, if it'll help, if I do a little WD-40 drip, if it'll help. Um, I've talked with uh, a couple people, um, Vince included, and they seem to be doing pretty well at the full 10,000 RPM with a WD-40 drip. But I'm just trying to figure out a way to cut like cleanly in the simplest way possible, and doing it completely dry um, would be the ideal. Um, but I'm just not quite sure what the right recipe is, and I'm trying to find that sweet spot while breaking as few tools as possible, which is a little challenging, and uh, I don't know. I, I'm actually going to uh, throw this out to the audience. If you have any tips for dry machining, um, please send them my way, because I I could certainly use a little bit of uh, help here. And you're using a coated tooling, right? Yeah, um, all Alton using Lakeshore Carbide Tooling. It uh, seems to be reasonably priced, uh, decent quality. So a, a good starter uh, end mill for some steel exploration. What diameter, cutting diameter were you? So I am targeting 16th inch um, as my sort of safe um, end mill size. And I'm going to try and push to 332nd inch, 332nds of an inch and 8th inch because um, if I can push up to those diameters, it would uh, just 
increase the material removal rate just a tiny little bit and also make it a little um, more applicable for like something like the Shapoko. Yeah, and you were, I'm assuming these are three or four flute. They are all four flutes. And I just ordered a couple um, corner radius end mills, and I'm really hoping that those are a little more durable and hardy um, because I'm not sure if it's the SFM that's killing the tools or just a little bit of vibration. But if it's not SFM, if it is just a little bit of like a lack of rigidity in a hobby grade machine uh, that's ruining my end mills, then hopefully that corner radius just lets me power through at the same uh, speeds and feeds that I'm currently running now. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, your results sound a lot like what I went through when I tried to cut uh, titanium on the Nomad. Um, I basically didn't have much success till I increased my uh, feed per tooth. I can't remember what, I think I stayed at pretty close to 10K RPM, well, 8,500, I think is where I was running. But uh, yeah, I ended up having to run really slow feed rate and that got uh, made it to the end. You know, basically, I didn't have that much to remove. I was just doing some profiling and some small bores, but um, the tool was pretty much worn out by the time I was done with that one part. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I would say tool life uh, on these machines and that hard material, it's, it's going to be a, a way of life. It was the, you know, it's going to be um, a consequence, right? It's going to be short tool life no matter what. But I think you know, you've got the right recipe as far as you know, small multi-flute coated tooling, um, that's, you know, that's about as good as it's going to get for dry machining in that material, uh, on that machine. So hopefully it's just a matter of getting the recipe dialed in speeds and feeds wise. I think I can still do a little better if I sort of up my air blast, cause I'm using, uh, my old hydroponic pump before I upgraded to the 900 plus gallon per hour one, it was like a 750, 730 gallon per hour unit. And that one it's the the 3d printed nozzle that i have on the nomad the the force of the air coming out of that is definitely diminished compared to fresh out of the pump so i'm not sure if i need to uh, constrict that flow a little bit more at the end to sort of accelerate it or just like get a proper nozzle but i am definitely not um optimizing like the air blast uh for chip removal the steel chips are just a lot more dense and they they linger in pockets and cuts just a lot more. So I need something just a little more forceful to really evacuate it and make sure I'm not recutting chips. Yeah, and I don't I don't know on these machine like on a bigger machine, you know, steel chips are gonna be hard they'll be harder than the the initial material, right? Because they take they take up all the heat if you're doing it right. Um, so yeah, it's like brutal to recut those. Titanium's the same way. But yeah, if you can get those chips out of there, that'll probably help with the the tool breakage at least. Yeah, so I mean I would write I'd rather stick with the four flute just for that the the strength of the uh, the core. But I mean there might be cases where two flute works better. Something like the Nomad where you don't have a lot of you have like kind of a normal range on the RPM on the spindle. Seems like multi flute might be better in that material, like a higher flute count, but uh, I just don't know enough about machining steel it's a really good good answer that's i'm very curious to see uh how you're where you end up with your experiment because uh i do want to do more of that at least you know i'm i like stainless kind of doing 303 and i'm soon going to be doing 304 um but tool still would be kind of cool too so especially if i want to do kind of some work holding stuff 
think O2 would be good for some of the parts. Speaking of, uh, I'm sorry, push, putting the Nomad through its paces. I don't know. Um, have you been following the the machine contest at Bantam Tools? Is- I have been just seeing things occasionally. I am not subscribed to the uh, the hashtag for it, so all I see is what the people I'm already subscribed to are posting. Um, but I'm sure you're seeing a lot more uh, of the the true diversity of the entries. Yeah, they actually had pretty good uh, pretty good participation. It, the contest is closed, and we're in the judging phase now. Um, so I'm I'm one of the judges, and John Saunders is the other one, and, and Brittany um, Nico Curio on Instagram is the third judge. So we're just start, kind of starting that that process. I thought it was going to be a lot easier. <laughs> than it was it's actually it's going to be pretty tough because there's a lot of good entries and um event centered and he did uh machines you know pretty big amount of well big for me anyway um amount of titanium for his entry he did that on the nomad uh, i think he did it was his was like two pieces so it was aluminum on the phantom tools machine and the titanium outer part or outer component of his entry was uh titanium and he did that on the nomad so i've talked with him about that i think he says about um six thousand ish is the rpm he runs at for titanium so that would be probably one thing where the nomad is better optimized uh for cutting titanium than the bantam machine oh yeah i think i think there's more torque in the spindle too um i don't know if he has he has the latest spec nomad right yeah the 70 watt yeah, yeah. So that's my my cut was at fifty. So I'm kind of curious, just how much improvement that makes. I may go back and revisit that on the Nomad pretty soon. I've I've got some grade two that uh, I think that's what I cut last time. I can't. I have to go back and look at my at my Instagram post. I'm pretty sure it was grade two that I ran on the Nomad. But I did that wet. I'd rather try to do what you did and just see how well it works dry. See if there's a good formula for it. I think that's actually, I don't know how Vince did it. I think he had a drip, like you mentioned. Either a drip or like really strong air blast. Um, I think either of those would help a lot. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure like chip recutting was my number one problem because I was basically doing outer profiling, right? Slotting. Yeah. What Were it you was. doing the, uh, the hot glue little coolant dam? Yeah, and it worked. I think that worked fine for cooling, but it did nothing for chip evacuation, which is, you know, it turned out to be the number one challenge. So, um, yeah, I think if I do it again, it'll, I'll have an air blast set up. Um, There's all these things I want to do once I get my compressor. <laughs> so, one of them is, yeah, air, air blast on all the machines. So, uh, yeah, well, I'll wait till I get that going and then see if I get better results. But I'll definitely try it dry. Do you think. Um, using a larger volume of coolant uh, would help. Uh, do you think the small quantity that you had contained, um, just the, the, I guess the concentration of chips floating around in there was too great? It was mostly just kind of they were ending up in the bottom of the cut. Oh, um, so the, the turbulence of the cutter in a fluid still wasn't enough to get them out? Y- well, yes and no, because... Um, so I was making multiple passes to get down. It was a four millimeter plate, so I had to go really shallow, right? So it was multiple, like, I don't know, probably went around that piece 60 times. And, uh, yeah, as the tool was going, as it was cutting, that those chips that were 
basically out of the cut, but then they would resettle back in. So when it came back around the second time, it was almost like leaving a trail behind it. You know how the, when you get deep gotcha. in those. Yeah, that, that happens in other cuts as well. So Yeah, so when it comes back around, it's got a, a mess to cut through. Um, and they were really fine chips because I was taking tiny. That was probably also my problem. I was probably taking too, too small a fever tooth because um, it definitely improved as I started getting more aggressive with that. So I think I would start, you know, I'd probably start where I left off last time and probably push it up a little bit more, um, especially if I had air blast, I'd be a lot more confident that that might work. Yeah, so that was kind of, I just wanted to mention that he, he'd been doing something similar on the Nomad. Didn't know if you guys were, sounds like you guys were in touch, kind of sharing advice. We, we've sort of touched base, but I really need to pick his brain a little more. Um, I do have a six by six inch plate of uh, grade two. So, um yeah, I'll be talking with him more soon enough. Yeah, so I'll put uh, I'll put links to the uh, basically the entry gallery for the for the contests. Uh, encourage our listeners to take a look. There's some really nice, uh, really creative entries in there. And speaking of contests, I don't know if it's a, if it's official yet, but um, Al Watmo from Autodesk hinted on Instagram that they might be hosting another uh, Fusion 360 challenge soon. I guess after the after the one that's going on at, at Autodesk uh, Fusion 360 Academy. So maybe one more this year. Well, you mean for after Portland or after Las Vegas? Yeah, I mean, the Portland ones are, as far as I know, that's closed, right? Yeah, it's far too soon. It, like, it'd be too tight a deadline for anything to do with uh, Fusion um, Academy. Yeah, he just mentioned it last week. So I think it's, yeah, like he said, it's probably going to be lined up with AU or, you know, or maybe just a second half of the year contest. So anyway, that, and I was, you know, I heard rumors that the last contest was going to be the last one. So it sounds like maybe that's not true. And there's going to, I hope they continue it. Cause I, I learn a lot from that. Have you uh, picked up any sort of interesting techniques or inspiration from the Bantam tools challenge? Um, so I saw some materials cut on there that I didn't think that I wouldn't have thought to try. So, yeah, I think there was, um, there's definitely, well, actually, I take that back. So my assumption actually going into the judging was that most of the entries were done on pocket, I'm sorry, on uh, Bantam tools, but actually a lot of times Bantam, the Bantam machine, if they had one, did one piece, right? And then uh, there was usually another machine involved if there was something more challenging, like Vince, Vince did his on both machines to put together his assembly. Yeah, I can't say, um, I mean, there's definitely cool stuff in that in the entries. I, I guess that's fair. I mean, you also have um, a pretty broad experience with a whole bunch of hobby machines. So unless they're machining something super exotic, it's probably not going to surprise you. Toughest thing I've tried on the Bantam tools is uh, aluminum bronze, like 954 bronze. And that worked great. I didn't have any problems with that um, at higher RPM. It was a little more, I tried it on the Nomad too, and I was able to cut it well. I just don't think I did enough uh, work with it to get a good uh, recipe for that on the Nomad. So I never could quite dial up the chatter on there, but I think um, I was probably cutting too fast. It was a bigger tool than I used. I used a much smaller tool on the on the Bantam machine, and it, like I think it was 18K, and it worked like really well, and the finish it left was... I mean, that material always looks really good when it's machined anyway. It's just, like, really good. Um, but I never tried titanium or steel, stainless steel on it. I don't know if I would. 
So that's kind of like my my high precision spindle. I really well, so is my SK, right? But I, I think of the Bantam tools like probably aluminum, aluminum bronze is the safe limit on hard materials. Yeah, because it's so small, um, it's a lot easier for chips to find their ways to places where they probably shouldn't be. So you might want to stick to the softer stuff with that machine. I don't know how much of you said want to put that spindle through, <laughs> but because um, you know, ultimately, I still use that machine for doing my PCBs occasionally, and you know, I really that, that's if there's any kind of run out or anything, you're going to notice it when you're doing really small trace features on the on your PCB. So. I'm nice to my my Bantam machines. <laughs> I make them work hard, but not yeah. I don't abuse them. Yeah. So speaking of testing, I've been doing some uh, aggressive cuts on the Pocket and C V two fifty lately because uh, uh, Dan at uh, Dan the Measure at uh, Daytron sent me some four millimeter shank tooling, single flute tooling. They all have a four millimeter shank, which is kind of odd. But I asked for those because I wanted um, wanted to compare them to the one eighth inch and three millimeter tooling that I was using. Um, so basically I got the same cutting diameters, two millimeter, three millimeter. And then I, I don't know if I have a four millimeter. I think my only four millimeter cutting diameter tool was a six millimeter shank, which won't work on the V250, it's too big. But he sent me a four millimeter uh, cutting diameter also. So uh, I've only done testing with the four and the three millimeter so far, but um, my theory is that, you know, with the the larger shank diameter, I'll get a little bit rigid, a little bit more rigid tool, and it's the maximum shank diameter that I can put on the on the NSK spindle on the V two fifty. So I was basically considered this like a best case uh, if you want maximum rigidity out of the tool. Uh, these are short, pretty short cutting lengths. I think the longest one I have is ten millimeter flute length uh, for the four millimeter tool, and then I basically just kind of reran my recipes in aluminum and Delrin um, that I've done with the two and three millimeter tool before and basically I'm getting um, I can run basically just as fast with the four millimeter tool um, I can run it to six I ran like one test at six millimeter depth of cut at uh, I think it was like 47 K RPM um, that ran well the spindle had no problem with it but the I was kind of hearing a little bit of groaning coming out of the the uh, lead screw nuts so those are Delrin on the V250 so I was you know I was probably pushing it a little too hard. So I went back and ran it again at four millimeter depth of cut. And that's like my new champion for material removal rate. Um, yeah, and I've been posting some of that on, on Instagram. I've still got a bunch more testing to do, but right now I'm pretty happy with this. I think that's four millimeter cutting diameter, four millimeter shank is like my new favorite tool on the V250 for both Delrin and aluminum. Um, and Delrin, I was running it at 10 millimeters, like the full, full depth of the tool, uh, which is pretty good. I, I tried that with the two millimeter tool a few months ago and stalled out the spindle at I think seven millimeter depth. So this one's, uh, I don't know if it's just the larger diameter or it's I'm not quite sure why, <laughs> the, why it failed was last it time. Was it the uh, same optimal load in like everything basically? It was, um, so on the Delrin, I did tweak it a little bit. Uh, I think the big difference, so yeah, I definitely ran higher RPM on the four millimeter. I was probably running the two millimeter too slow. Um, but the other thing is uh, the four millimeter tool was new. <laughs> and the, four, the two millimeter tool was well well used and uh, both metal and, and 
plastic. So yeah, it's probably not a good comparison. I, I have a feeling I need to test again with the two millimeter tool. It probably would have succeeded uh, with a new tool. Um, would have succeeded in that seven millimeter cut in Delrin. What kind of uh, what kind of RPMs were you pushing on the four mil? Forty seven k in aluminum and thirty seven k in Delrin. Um, it could probably run faster in Delrin. I just was worried about heat, you know, melting. And I usually run Delrin a little bit slower, just so I don't have to, because I can't run at the feed rate that it would really need to run in, you know, in Delrin at forty seven k. The machine kind of tops out at, at 60 inches per minute. So um, I had to adjust the RPM. I forgot about that. Yeah, if, I'm, I'm pretty sure the spindle could have handled it a much faster cut. Um, even at 10 millimeter, it just kind of ran out of feed rate. So I had yeah, to adjust. Yeah, even, because even on the Nomad, when I'm using an eighth inch tool, I'm pushing like 80 to 100 inches per minute. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I get some advantage over the two millimeter as far as, I mean, it's more rigid, so I can actually run deeper depth of cut than what I'm doing with the two millimeter. Um, even in aluminum, I think. Well, I, I ran, to be fair, I ran the two millimeter at six millimeter depth in aluminum. Um, it didn't sound all that good compared to this thing sounded fine at, at six millimeters in aluminum. It's just the four millimeter tool did. But um, I didn't like the way the axis sounded. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The cut sounded fine, the spindle sounded fine, but the axes sound like they were they were working a little too hard so um yeah so i think like i'm pretty comfortable with four millimeter four millimeter depth of cut in aluminum with this tool at really high rpm i can probably i don't think i have my final recipe i have what i consider the conservative one but i'm going to probably be able to push up the the uh step over because I, I was doing 0.25 i can probably go up to maybe 0.3 with this tool um, or either that or speed up the the feed rate a little bit. I'm out of RPM. <laughs> I can't go up. Yeah, I go to 50, but I'm trying to run. I try to stay away from 50 now. I try to run a little bit below the max just to help spend a life. But um, yeah, so I, I still have some more testing to do. I want to kind of see what the limit is with this 4 millimeter tool. But I'm pretty happy with the, the current recipe, conservative one. This one I would use for like commercial parts. Mm -hmm. And that sounds about right um I, I had to do quick math but that's about 10 thou right quarter millimeter um yeah and i think you know i'm not running i'm running it daytron's recommended uh sfm but i'm not running anywhere near their feed rate right mm -hmm. so your chip load's going to be much smaller yeah exactly so um so i started with sticking with their sfm and just reducing the the chip load and seeing how well, and that's kind of where I've been testing right now. Um, so another option would be maybe slow down the RPM um, and try to get closer to their chip load, but I don't think my machine can do that anyway. So even at lower RPM, but yeah, it's doing, it's pretty good. And it, it's basically, you know, the benefit is it's faster, right? To remove material, um, everything else being equal versus the smaller two millimeter tool that was kind of my favorite before. So the downside of course is it can't reach in features a lot of the features I use, I would, could not run this four millimeter tool into them too big, but for bulk removal, this is my new baby. Yeah. And since you've got the, uh, the tool length probing on the pocket NC, I mean, you just rough out what you can and then switch tools later. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I have, um, I have not tested this one. I don't think I tested this in on the, on the, uh, Bantam tools machine. Yeah. I definitely tested the three millimeter. I'll give it a shot. I, 
I just got to find out. It might work okay. Um, usually I try to stay one eighth inch and smaller on the, on the Bantam machine and metal seems to really like the two millimeter. Um, three millimeter probably work pretty good. So it's really, I only have like two other three millimeter cutting diameter tools here. So this, this would be a good one to try. Uh, see what else? Um, yeah, so that's pretty much what I've been doing that I can show this week unless like going into the holiday. I'm working on a project that hopefully I can talk about next episode. It's been a pretty, pretty fun project. Um, learning a lot from it, but um, it's a little premature. I can't quite talk about it yet. But I hopefully will have an update next episode. Looking forward to it. Hopefully by then I have uh, a little more to show on my end as well. I'm hoping to lock down my steel speeds and feeds, hopefully this week or next week, and then start on the uh, the next long-term carbide project. So are you uh, eventually going back to aluminum so you can start uh, working on the anodizing a little more? I'm really torn on that front. I have a video about uh, making the front plates for the maker knife, and I wanted to wrap that up by doing the anodizing myself, not in JPL Richard shop, but like entirely on my own. And the just accumulating all the supplies to complete my DIY anodizing setup has just dragged on because I like to do a lot of research and just sort of like find the right size tub for immersing the parts and uh, sourcing the wire and my cathodes and uh, the power supply I recently just bought, um, but I'm still missing the acid. I'm still missing um, all the the wiring and the racking stuff that I need to hang all my parts. So I'm thinking at this point that I might just want to push out the the maker knife video sooner, not show the sort of nominal um, anodizing process because there were still some variables that we hadn't optimized when I recorded it. Uh, some of the colors came out a little blotchy. And instead of waiting till I have it perfect, which I really want to do, I might just push out the video a little sooner and then come up with a different project later um, showing a like a proper anodize that's as perfect as I think I can get it. So just I really want that one video to be perfect right out of the gate but I don't think it makes sense to hold on to that video for like another couple weeks. Um, I should really just get that um, on YouTube off my hard drive so I can move on to the next project. Uh, that's probably the best use of my time. So running the anodizing setup like at your house or under your basically completely under your control is going to help you. I would think a lot on getting through some of the process challenges with that. Um, and the nice thing is like, once you have that skill kind of under your belt, it's something you can use for a lot of, like a lot of other projects. Right. So, um, and you can even go back and revisit that knife and re-anodize it until you get it perfect. Yeah. I'm probably not going to re-anodize the, the knife handles that I have because those have been through, um, Richard set up a couple of times and every time you have to re-strip it, you get just a, <clears throat> sorry. You get just a little bit of pitting on the surface as you dunk it in the lye. Um, sixty sixty one isn't like it's far from commercially pure aluminum, so I believe um, as the material cools from being initially cast, that um, certain impurities precipitate out towards the surface. So I think some of that is why I'm getting some some pits and cavities in the surface, and it's not as smooth. 
uh, every time it gets uh, re-anodized. So I'm probably going to machine something fresh um, and then anodize that for my proper test. Um, but I also want to say that controlling variables, um, JPL Richard does a pretty good job, um, despite the fact that he's sort of more going for a protective anodize and not a cosmetic anodize. Uh, my problem being a perfectionist is that I look at these things, I see a little bit of blotchiness and I'm like, that's like, it's good enough for YouTube, like on camera, it looks fine. But personally, I see that little flaw because I'm the maker and it just, it screams out to me. So I'm, I'm really keen on getting something that's almost like flawless, um, something, something more cosmetic. It's got to pass the, uh, what I showed this to John Grimsoy at a conference, <laughs> if I ran into him, <laughs> test, right? I, I'm not sure I would show anything to him. Like, unless I can put it on a lapping machine, it's not going to impress him. Yeah, so hopefully you'll get that, uh, you'll get really good at it, and I'm going to start sending you parts <laughs> for anodizing. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's really just a matter of controlling the variables as best you can. Like, temperature is a big one. Um, when we uh, did the color in it, or, well, when I dunked the parts that were freshly anodized in dye, at Richard's, um, in Richard's kitchen, he had his jars of dye in sort of a double boiler setup, um, just a large pot half filled with water. You submerge the jars in them and then you drop the parts in and he had just a, the, a small flame going underneath it. And I think that temperature gradient caused the parts that were lower in that jar to absorb color a little differently than the top. So like, maybe I should buy like a, a large shallow bath, get like a little sous vide thing and uh, circulate water at a fixed temperature without the the sharp temperature gradient of an open flame um when i do the anodizing maybe like i can be really anal about how much ice i put into the bath to maintain the temperature of the acid uh, I, I don't know how crazy i want to go with it but i i might go to one extreme and then slowly back off just so that i know that um, sort of like the light at the end of the tunnel, the final recipe will work. And then I'll just sort of loosen my tolerances until I find something acceptable that doesn't drive me crazy every single time I have to anodize something. Yeah, what's your maximum part size for anodizing? Like, did you scale your power supply to handle something as big as the monitor stand? Um, it should, in theory, be able to do that, but I'm not sure I want to anodize something that big. Um, just because you need a tub that's large enough, and that means holding on to a larger quantity of acid. When we did it at um, in Richard's shop, like we were maxing out his tub, and he holds about a gallon and a half of acid in his bath. And I really don't want to have to store much more than that in my garage. So I'm probably going to aim for something just a little bit smaller than that. Like the largest part might be like... Uh, printer paper sized eight and a half by 11 um and maybe a, a couple inches tall but really the capacity is is not going to be huge um it's more just for smaller parts and i think really there's not going to be a lot of like large structural parts that i want to make in the immediate future anything larger than that like a a long board i'll just send that out um it's really just small things like my uh cheese grater and the, the maker knife handles that I want to anodize myself. To have uh, the ability to do small parts quickly is, would be nice, I think. Um, but yeah, for big stuff, it's still send it out to the pros, right? 
big stuff and also um, like large quantities of something. Um, because with the, the DIY anodizing, uh, you don't have a lot of ways to hold apart. It's usually just wrap wire around it or um, like, well, I mean, that's that's pretty much it as far as I'm concerned, because unless you have like like aluminum gator clips or something, it's you really don't want to immerse something ferrous in your bath. So um, some other metals that you could use, I think like copper or like uh, lead, like I heard that sometimes they can sort of contaminate the acid. So um, Richard's been using his, well, he used to be using the same acid for like over a year and it's still clear. It, it looks just fine. Um, so I want to keep anything that goes in the bath purely aluminum. And since they, I can't find aluminum gator clips or some of the other like custom racking um, contraptions, it's probably just wrap wire around the part and dunk it in. Yeah, I think titanium is also supposed to be pretty good for, like, work holding and, and the anodizing oh, yeah. tank. That's true. It's also um, more expensive. Yeah. Yep. Aluminum is gonna. Does your wiring anodize when your work holding anodize or get anodized? It, it does, and that's why you need to make sure you have a a really solid physical contact between the parts. Like, um, if if let's say you're trying to anodize a washer, when you wrap the wire through the middle of the washer and around you give it a couple wraps and uh, give give that little fixture like a little shake. And if the washer rattles around at all, um, that's not a good connection. You want to make sure it is completely solid. There's no relative movement because if it can move at all, um, if just like a little current like uh, wiggles the washer at all, um, the wire and that uh, contact point will just immediately anodize over and you're going to get a weaker and weaker contact as it as the uh, anodization, as the um, anodization layer builds up, yeah, that makes sense. It's like dielectric layer. So, well, well, I hope that hope that works out. I'm looking forward to kind of seeing your progress with that. Um, you you might convince me to do that here, <laughs> so we'll see how it goes for you. But it, it really isn't that bad, and I know I shouldn't say this, but um, JPL Richard uh, tried to give me the most thorough, old school um, education he could. And um, he, he told me, dip your finger in the acid, let me know what it feels like. And I did it, and it felt like nothing. Because it's not like, even though it's concentrated acid, it doesn't uh, eat away at you like what you might think if you watch like Alien or something. Like the, the speed at which it erodes materials isn't that fast. If you dip your fingers in it and you wash it off quickly, you're totally fine. So it's really not as dangerous as you think. It's really just if you spill a little and you don't notice and it discolors your, your concrete or your garage floor or like um, if it gets on your tabletop and you put down a metal tool on top of that, that's not good. As long as you maintain good hygiene, it's a really a fairly safe process. I think most of the issues I see with people that do DIYs, not so much around issues with the acid, is just the outcome, right? The, getting the quality control consistent between batches yeah um i've seen a lot of success stories out there though so i think it's you know it takes a while to get there eventually you kind of get it especially if you're doing the same parts if you're doing different geometry every time it probably will always be a source of frustration <laughs> yeah i mean i will say that i've seen a lot of people do one or two parts at a time i haven't seen someone uh like show a sort of like a a factory style like 
dunking multiple batches of parts and coming out with a um, a consistent outcome. I'm sure they can do it, but I haven't seen that proven out on YouTube for like the DIYer. Yeah, I think um, it's 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 going to be a um, good skill to have under your belt as a maker, though. A very useful, right? For especially if, like you say, if you're going to make parts that are going to go out in the real world and they're aluminum and they have a nice finish, that's going to kind of give you the durability to to make those parts last. So, yeah, it's kind of kind of essential if it's going to be handheld. Um, it should be anodized or you make the part out of steel and you worry just a little bit less stainless steel there you go um so yeah so i'm trying to think what else um i have some if i got anything i can sh- oh yeah i do have something coming up but probably start on it late this week early next week um i had to push it out a week but it's something i can show so it's a that couple of parts i mentioned i'm helping another uh, instant machinist with um just a fun project not not for money, but we'll see how that uh, how that works out. It's a kind of a V two fifty challenge piece, um, but yeah, I should have hopefully the beginnings of that. It's the work holding is a bit of a challenge for me because it's uh, it's got to, it's one of those parts has to be machined on all sides, so I got to figure out a good way to hold it. And I flipped it over, so I may end up working on like that soft jaws idea we talked about for the pocket and C vice. That that could work out pretty well. Um... Which reminds me, I really do want to run my Pocket NC in the next week or two. Um, so there was uh, just sort of a recap of Maker News. Um, Adam Savage publicly announced that he was uh, coordinating with the Smithsonian on uh, Project Egress, which is a recreation by a bunch of makers of the Apollo 11, um, I think, hatch. The command module tour which is a really cool symbolic thing. And there's a lot of makers who are involved in making a small piece of that. Um, but I kind of want to take on the challenge of making just one of those little parts um, on the pocket NC, which being multi-axis would make it really easy. And I could probably do it in one setup, but I just want to go through the exercise of taking someone else's part that probably some poor student had to go and reverse engineer um, for project egress um, and make one of those parts. And all the files from that hatch that like 40 different makers are all putting together are available on the Smithsonian uh, website. Hopefully we remember to stick a link in the show notes, but anyone can download that. And it's a pretty complex uh, fusion assembly. So I just want to find something interesting from there and uh, machine it either full scale or half scale out of a, a maybe a quick material Delrin HDPE um, just to go through the motions of creating some five-axis G-code. That's pretty cool. I think, um, yeah, I'll take a look at those because I'm looking for some test parts <laughs> anyway. So uh, something a little more complex than what I've been running for these speeds and peeds tests uh, for the, when I was testing out the Datron tool. So, um, yeah, I, I need to find just a little part to be fun to kind of exercise too for doing... Um, multi-axis cam if there's any like that i would assume there's some that are going to require multi-axis there is one in particular that i'm looking at it's one of the linkages in the door latching mechanism and it's basically sort of a small bar it looks like you're like a finger if you bent it just a little bit and at each end there are holes drilled through um, that are uh, pinned to other parts of the linkage 
and it's maybe about 160, 150 degree um, little part, uh, large obtuse angle. And so uh, roughing that out, boring in two holes from um, non-orthogonal axes um, should be a good little cam exercise, I think, and something I could probably knock out within a day or two. So that's one of the parts that I'm looking at. Yeah, it does sound like a, a kind of a fun source for interesting parts, um, even if we're not you know, participating in the official <laughs> uh, Smithsonian event. Um, I'm glad they're sharing the models. That's, that's cool. Yeah, it is super cool. And the, the model, um, just a little warning, could crash lesser computers. I think the, the Fusion Archive, when you download it, it's like close to 50 megs, and there's like 200 parts. A lot of them are like hardware pieces and and just overly modeled nuts and bolts. Um, but the the parts themselves that you might want to take a crack at are still fairly well modeled. Although uh, they did take a couple of shortcuts, like there are small fillets and chamfers that weren't modeled in, and you can apply a little intuition to, to figure out what NASA would have done differently. Yeah, are they? Is it one large fusion file, like a whole assembly in one file, or is it? It is. You download the the master assembly, and then when you unpack it, make sure you put it in a separate folder or a separate project because all the other parts will just populate in your library after that point. Um, but everything is in a single file that you can download. Okay. Yeah, I might I might uh, give that a look at least. Let's kind of take a look. I've seen. Some of the people that are participating, like I think John Saunders, um, i trying to remember who else. I've seen some stuff here and there on Instagram. There, there's a lot of makers involved. Um, 3D Printing Nerd, I like to make stuff. Um, Stephanie, Doresta, so many people. A little jealous. Um, Ryan Nagata. Um, oh, this old Tony. So this was reverse engineered, right? They didn't necessarily get drawings from NASA. Correct. Um, the Smithsonian and Autodesk work together. They 3D scan some of it, but the quality of those scans is not like great um, because point cloud data, it's not going to be perfect. Someone went through each part with calipers and actually made the proper fusion model for everything that people are involved with. Um, and you can tell that it was a, a pretty straightforward modeling job for them. They didn't take into account things like manufacturability. So there are some like internal corners that just would not be machinable as is. Um, so there are some parts that I was looking at where I was like, all right, if I actually wanted to make this, I'd put in just a little round there, a fillet there. Um, NASA would probably chamfer all of the hard edges because you don't want anything potentially like rupturing an astronaut's EVA suit or whatever. Um, so all the touch points have to be have to be rounded over. But assume that was all like when it was originally made. There was I don't think I don't know if they even had multi-axis machining. Like it was probably all three-axis work and a whole bunch of setups for a lot of those complex parts. Yeah, true, that was probably back in the day of manual G-code and really really basic cam packages, if any. I was thinking about how I could fixture some of these things and it just it became extremely tedious and i just figured if i'm going to do this it's probably going to be on the pocket nc yeah okay well that's cool i'll uh, i'll definitely put that link in the in the show notes uh to point to the smithsonian project yeah it's really not much going on like i said I'm just kind of recuperating from the holiday trying to get back to 
good uh, workflow in the shop for this week. And it sounds like you, you're kind of doing the same, right? I, I'm just in between so many projects. I've got like five different projects sitting in Final Cut Pro that I really want to close out. And I'm just waiting for a little more footage or waiting for myself to get over that mental hump of, hey, I can release this project as is, like that maker knife anodizing fiasco. So hopefully once I get over that, and once I dive deeper um, in my uh, tool steel exploration, and I actually start making a project and not just test pieces, that'll sort of kick me into gear um, to start working on something new. But right now, it's it's just sort of overcoming that inertia, that burden of old projects, um, and and trying to find motivation to start something new. Yeah, I understand. And I think, you know, I like doing the, the test, like the recipe development um, for the Pocket and C. So trying to make that a little more interesting by getting more interesting geometry <laughs> for the test. So that's, yeah, like you said, I think uh, maybe a Project Apollo would be a good source. Or we're, I'm not sure if that's the official name of the project, but. The project is Project Egress um, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the uh, Apollo 11 mission. Uh, when are you uh, taking your training for the uh, the Neo? So right now it's probably going to be um, after we get back from Fusion 360 Academy. So either I think probably mid to late August. Yeah, I'm gonna try to get it kind of sandwiched between my two trips, between the Portland trip and the the Germany trip, emo trip. Um, and then I think right now the machine, so it's kind of pushed out. I think I don't know if I shared the date last time, but it's right now I'm expecting the Neo to get here between late September, early October, um, which is good for me because that gives me more time to finish all the other pre-work I got to do in the garage. And that's that's bad for me because holiday travel is really hectic, and that's gonna probably not gonna be able to come out and uh, lay my eyes on that thing until uh, early 2020. That's all right. By then, I'll know how to use it. <laughs> yeah, but I really want to see it sooner. <laughs> yeah, well, anytime. I just want to see it run in person and push the big green button. Yeah, so, so you know, that gives me a little extra time to, to work on my tooling and work holding kind of initial setup for the machine. So, Yeah, I want you to build up your, your speeds and feeds library so that when when Chris and I inevitably come over, it's a lot quicker to take some of our existing uh, cam tool pads and uh, retrofit them for, for Datron speeds. Yeah, speeds and feeds are going to be easy because now that I'm using Datron tooling on a Datron machine, that's all published <laughs> by Datron. So I can actually use their as-published speeds and feeds. You know, I always have to adjust them for the machines here. Oh, true. I forget that. I'm always used to having to, to prove out speeds and feeds on my own. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I might get into some materials that aren't really covered in their speeds and feeds, but, um, but initially, yeah, it's going to be, I'll be going by the book, so to speak. Um, I got, you know, I'm trying to figure out like what vice, what pair of vices I want to get for the machine. Um, it's main limitation for me is, uh, and something I'm used to with these other machines here, it's uh, Z, Z axis height, right? So I have to be judicious about, uh, how tall my work holding is. So I don't want to lose too much Z height. Um, so I'm looking at some low-profile vices. Um, Orange has some nice, the Delta Four compact vice, and then um, even Saunders. Like if I can figure out some way to get his mod vice working on there, uh, that's going to work for a taller stock. So 
that's kind of that part's the fun part. <laughs> um, getting contractors and everything out here is the part that's not so fun. The end result's going to be where I want to be, so um, I'm okay with all the inconvenience of dealing with contractors and electrical and all that stuff. Um, just to get a good, you know, get a machine in here that I want to get to work on soon. Yeah, that'll be uh, very exciting. Yeah, so we'll figure out we'll figure out some way to get like a little uh, make a vacation down here and uh, get you a chance to play around on it. Yeah, that'll be great. I already know what part I'm going to run. Um, I want to I want to make a sort of a, a hexagon shaped coaster style um, piece using the Mac Pro texture, uh, just because I want to see what kind of surface finish um, that Datron would come up with, because the like ball end mills near the tip don't do a great job but with the rigidity and the speed of the datron uh, you could probably knock that thing out really fast and have a much better surface finish right off the bat because even after i bead blasted uh the one i made on the shape oko you can still see some of the, the waterline marks as the tool spiraled upwards and it's it's just not ideal and i'm curious to see what the industrial machine will do yeah that'd be fun piece for vacuum work holding for for op one you could. It's just a matter of how you want to do op two. And I know you had talked about perhaps using a fourth axis on that. Um, but I, I feel like the most efficient way to use the material would be to vacuum or cold op one and then somehow um, isolate these pieces and maybe throw them in soft jaws for op two. Yeah, that'd be that'd be fun uh, fun little challenge. All right, well, I think I'm going to kind of wrap it up. I know it's a little early, but uh, i got to finish up some work here. Totally understandable. I need to catch up on sleep, so I will not, uh, I will not complain about ending early. All right, well, I'm going to say goodnight, Winston, and uh, talk to you next time. Sounds good. Have a good one, Eddie. Good night.